Hello, everyone. This is Arielle, and I'm excited to introduce our two speakers for today, Nora Bosom and Deb Eppinson. Nora is the Director of Maternal and Child Health Programs at Great Plains Tribal Leaders Health Board. She's put her skills and heart to work as a clinical social worker and qualified mental health professional to serve individuals and families in our communities who live with FASD. Nora is the founder and president of Roots to Wings, a nonprofit dedicated to advocating and supporting people living with FASD. She and her husband have fostered over 160 children for the state of South Dakota and the Ogala Lakota Sioux Tribe. In 2009, she was appointed to the Governor's Mental Health Board, joined the Truesman Center for FASD, and began speaking nationally. Deb Evanson is an internationally recognized FASD consultant, master teacher, and behavior specialist with more than 40 years experience teaching and developing programs for individuals with highly challenging behaviors. Her range of teaching includes students with cognitive impairments to those with highly gifted abilities in K grades K through 12, as well as adult life. She worked with her first student with fetal alcohol syndrome in 1982 and has been a pioneer in discovering practical solutions that work for individuals with FASD. She's received many awards and was the inaugural recipient of Alaska's vision, leadership, and commitment to fetal alcohol syndrome in 2001. Since 2020, she has been working on projects in Alaska, Canada, and the lower 48, including the consultant working with the Kenai Peninsula Borough School District, the first school district in North America, attempting to prove their capacity to deal with the challenges of students with FASD in every grade level and every program. That was driven by the belief that the Alaskan frontier spirit and attitude provides an opportunity for us to solve the extreme challenges of FASD at a grassroots level that may appear unsolvable from a greater distance. She believes that by working together to serve people living with FASD today, we are working towards a future where this disability no longer exists. Thank you for listening. So today we're going to be discussing the stigmatization around maternal substance use disorders in the child welfare system. Um, and the <clears throat> shame and blame instead of help that, um, and, so, and some of the reasons why we can't, uh, why our rates of alcohol and, uh, and uh, other addictions use during pregnancy aren't going down is because of the stigmatism, the shame and blame that's happening and people are hiding from it rather than asking for help because of the reaction when they do. And that's something I think in the years that we've both um, been working with families that we see a lot is people who are afraid to share um, you know, what they're dealing with. They're not always honest about their use uh, during pregnancy or during any time mm -hmm. because of the fear of reprisal. And it's really hard when at times it's hard to feel like the child welfare system understands the reasoning behind some of these substance use disorders. And I think, I think one of the issues is, you know, the system itself often provides support for kids, you know, for children. And we understand when they have a different a disability or were prenatally exposed to alcohol and other drugs as before they were born and have learning differences. We understand that as children or the system does and provides support. But then when they become adults, somehow all that support turns to blame and punishment. And I was just thinking of a of this wonderful woman and one of my parents support groups that I ran up here in Alaska. Um, and she had been addicted, she had been using 
uh, meth, heroin, and alcohol during pregnancy. But because at that time there was so much known about alcohol use during pregnancy, she admitted that she used the other drugs, but absolutely refused to say that she used, also used alcohol, which has some very specific effects on the fetus, developing fetus. And so she didn't get the help that she needed, but it was all because she was, she was afraid, you know, she would lose custody of her children. She was afraid she would get no help if she told the truth. And the truth is her pregnancy was really rough. She was really, you know, going through a lot of stress during her pregnancy and was kind of doing the best she could without additional help just to get through it. I think we see that a lot where, you know, we know that this, the effects of prenatal exposure last an entire lifespan, but we are so much less forgiving in an adult than in a child. And often the system forgets that the parent could themselves be suffering from prenatal exposure. Some of the messages we're giving or the things that we need them to do to um, you know, keep their kids out of the system or get their kids back from the system might be mountains that they can't climb based on their understanding from that plan that they're being given. You know, I think one of the, the things that has affected my entire career was this statement, children always do their best. Mm. And, you know, the kids don't wake up try in the morning and go to school or go to a community event or whatever and try to mess up just so they'll get in trouble. You know, they're doing the best they can with what's going on in their life. And so do adults, mm-hmm. you know, like, <laughs> for example, this conversation between you and I today, uh, maybe on another day, uh, we might be more effective or something, but we're not trying to screw up. <laughs> right. right. No, we're, doing, we're doing the best we can for today, you know, and, and I have never met a mother ever anywhere mm-hmm. who was intentionally trying to harm her baby just so that by using mm-hmm. during pregnancy, just so her baby could be born with disabilities or uh, you know, permanent birth defects. I've never met a woman that would do that. That's against our very nature as human beings. So if a woman is using when she's pregnant, she needs help. Mm-hmm. There's something going on. You know, the, the country of Finland does, um, they do better than we do mm, and, yeah. uh, with their stats and stuff and, and helping people not uh, use when they're pregnant <clears throat> and what they do is when a, a woman's pregnant they provide all this support during the pregnancy and early infancy you know first couple years of life they provide counseling they provide financial support someone to be there and their incidence of prenatal exposure is way less we don't do that we just kind of point our fingers and the system kind of just points their fingers at the woman and shames her kind of a bad time in society anyway for women right now. There's a lot of woman blaming out there in general. And women have enough on their shoulders. Sometimes they just need some help. And I think that's one of the problems that we see in the work that we do with families is that our system operates so often in a very like, this is how we do it. And we 
aren't always seeing the ability for um, communication to be changed to the level that the person needs it, um, you know, really being able to, to help a woman succeed. We see a lot of people who want to lock women up or take their children away or charge them with child abuse based on prenatal exposure to that child within the child welfare system. One of the reasons I think, you know, to really look at is the amount of time that a caseworker has to work with each family. Um, we often see that they're really overburdened. The other thing is a lack of understanding and training, being able to keep people in their positions long enough to really train them on the brain differences of someone who's been prenatally exposed or someone who's dealing with substance use disorder. And the fact that you know, addiction is, is not a choice. It is definitely a medical issue. And we look at it a lot, like you choose to do this. And I agree with you, Deb. I still, I haven't met a mom who woke up thinking I'm going to drink and harm my child today, or I'm going to use and harm my child today. We've worked with a lot of women who want to change and don't have resources available to them or are terrified to ask for those resources, especially in our communities where you can legally be, you know, charged or put in jail for using. So what do you know about uh, states where the, it's been against the law to use while you're pregnant? Well, we're Didn't seeing South this Dakota? Didn't right. Well, Dakota? and, you know, South Dakota has some laws present that That's definitely, you know, we can we can lock people up while they're pregnant if they're using, um, you know, some of our our different areas absolutely it's criminal to use while you're pregnant and I hear that a lot when we're doing trainings or or speeches around all sorts of areas where people are like we need to lock these women up we need to charge them and yet what the stats show is the incidence of prenatal exposure goes up because people don't reach oh. out for help we see that prenatal care goes down because people avoid going to the doctor and therefore we have really negative outcomes in pregnancies because they're not getting health care and they're not getting any services for mental health issues. So that is definitely not the fix. Well, and I was thinking, you know, when you don't ask for help <clears throat> and you're hiding, then also other issues that put the child and the woman at risk such as domestic violence, some of those things that are going on, they're not asking for help there either. Right. So it just seems like it's a downward spiral that the shame and the blame pointing the fingers and saying, we're going to lock you up, you know, um, it only makes all, it, all parts of the problem worse. Absolutely. You know? and, and when we think about just in general, just think about being pregnant and think about women during pregnancy and how much their body is at risk anyway. What a big deal is, I, we often don't talk about that in pregnancy and the effect on a woman's body. Right. And uh, you know, how many are women are pregnant and against their will, but the rate of sexual assault is huge. So all these other issues that are related to it that put the woman can be really at risk. And so if we're going to, if we're going to provide some support for that woman, we have to look at all those other issues too, and then find a way to reach in through there and with a gentle supportive hand, help pull her out of the situation. And I think we both have seen the fact that a lot of money gets invested in, in uh, 
criminalization, whereas we struggle to get that money invested in treatment options or or in the child welfare system in the places we need to. Instead of coming in when there is a problem, we really need to be looking upstream. And yet we're so busy blaming and, and having stigmatization present that we're not doing that. And so we're just creating a system where you know, we're, we're downstream, we're creating a system where people are ashamed to ask for help, don't ask for help, and we see children paying, and we see families paying, and I think both of us know that we're not going to see the change that people want if we're not willing to look at the picture differently. Yeah, and you think about the role of women, and and how important they are to the survival of our cultures, mm -hmm. of our, of our, of humanity. They're the life givers. Mm -hmm. They, you know, women in pregnancy, they should be revered, whatever the situation is and, and help through this time um, because it's such a big deal. They're putting their own lives at risk to have a child as well and their own bodies. And so how can we support them? You know, I'm thinking of that, that story that we've all heard many times about um, the story about the, the babies that are being thrown in the water in the river and people downstream are rest, trying to rescue these babies in the river and save them. There's more babies coming, more babies coming that are floating down the river and they're pulling them, trying to pull them out until somebody finally says, well, why don't we go see why they're being thrown in the river and see if we can help up there to stop the baby's being thrown in the river. Mm -hmm. And it's like, if we're really going to solve this problem, we have to look at the whole situation. But it doesn't make it such a big problem we can't deal with it because it's really just human relations and helping each other as human being to human being, you know? Um, well, and I think, you know, some lessons learned from within the child welfare system from my years, not just in practice, but also as a foster parent would be the, the ability to connect. Um, and if a child is in care, you know, really building that relationship between the foster parents, um, the people providing services and the birth family and making sure that we're not siloing those things because- oh, yeah. I have learned so much when I was able to learn from the birth parents and, you know, and, and we're seeing movement in some countries where it's not just the child that goes into foster care. Like how can we keep mom and child together? Is yeah. there a program or is it even like there's some areas that are doing um, you know, if, if mom is pregnant and needs support, like mom and baby are in foster care and getting those supports so that they can learn to be healthy together. So there's things I think that can be done, but as long as we're continuing to say it's your fault that these things are happening, it's hard to get people to be willing to jump on board for those changes. Do you see that happening also? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I'm thinking of this of the situation. I know this woman, um, I'll say her name was Mary. And <clears throat> in a Sukstuk uh, community here in Alaska, a, a very remote community. And <clears throat> she, um, she had had a child. She had, was pretty new in recovery. And she had a, a child who was a couple years old, 
who she had done a lot of uh, drinking while she was pregnant with that child. And that child was born with fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. And, um, and but she was in recovery, was healthy, was back with her community and in a new relationship. And it was a healthy uh, relationship and uh, sober. <laughs> the baby was, the ch her child was doing well. Everything was going well. Uh, and, and she got pregnant again and was very excited about it. Then a bunch of things happened in the community and her partner, her boyfriend ended up leaving. And so she was by herself and she spiraled down and was, um, you know, relapsed. Okay. And some of her friends, so this is a really remote community. Uh, they have a village health aid there. Um, and there's no counselors that live in the community or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But so the village health aide and a couple of her friends got together with Mary and they were really concerned about her. And um, they asked her these two questions, you know, in the conversation, they told her how much they loved her and, and she was crying and said, you know, I don't want to do this again. And they said, well, what's hard for you? They just ask, what is hard? And she said, I just feel so alone. She said, I feel like I'm all alone. All my dreams are gone. You know, I'm trying to just keep myself living. Mm -hmm. You know, so that's where she was. And <clears throat> the, her friend said, well, what would help? And she said, if I just knew I wasn't alone. Right. So you know what this community did? These are the, these are the coolest people ever. <laughs> they, um, they just took turns hanging out with her. Like every single day, someone went by her house and had lunch with her or, or invited her to their house. Or they went for a walk on the beach. This is a community by the ocean. They, they just got involved. And they just showed her with their daily actions, you know, they just showed her that she wasn't alone and that they were all there together. And it's the coolest thing. She never, she didn't relapse one more time during pregnancy. She had a very healthy little girl. And they're Those still are, in the community and she is still sober. <laughs> so is it those stories story? of success that we can see, but I think, you know, what do you think it would take to be able to change the current child welfare system and practices to see that sort of success? Well, I, you know, I was thinking of one other program that I think is an amazing program. It's called the Fetal Alcohol Syndrome Society of the Yukon. And it's a program for adults who have, uh, were prenatally exposed to alcohol and other drugs themselves. They're now adults and they provide support to those adults in their adult lives. And what they do is they help you know, they just, their mandate is to help make a positive difference in the lives of adults living with FASD in that, mm -hmm. in, in the Yukon, in the Yukon territory in Canada. And they, so it's kind of like the welfare system, the child you know, welfare system, but they have more leeway in what they do. There's more, there's less rules, you know, and there's some, um, their, their goal is to provide a, a positive support. And so, their caseworkers or you know managers, what you call it, like a caseworker, you know, um, can be. I say I always say they're a little bit like um, a police officer, a little bit like a teacher, 
and a whole, a little bit like a social worker and a whole lot of auntie. Mm. So there's, they, they just have the ability to form more of a relationship and they help structure the lives of the, the adults and they can help them clean their cupboard. They can go with them to the doctor. They can work out with them. They can meet them for coffee. They can meet them in their office. They just have kind of take away some of the pretentiousness that often comes with our systems where we think we can't get involved or we that's unprofessional. And they just, they just form a relationship. This program got 55 people off the streets, by the way. I see that, you know, I look at the years that I fostered and and the times that I was able to look at it as more of a relationship Uh with not just the child, but with the family and building those relationships so that we could have reunification and we could have positive outcomes. And those were the times that you could see success because, and I, you know, I know one of the things that I've long hoped for is that we could begin to look at training foster parents as not just caregivers for children, but caregivers for a family system, because, you know, that to me is something that is a little bit broken right now. And I know the messages are given, but it's not maybe in a way that you and I know could be done if we look at it really from trauma informed and really helping people understand, you know, trauma brains and prenatally exposed brains and also the brains of someone who's dealing with substance use disorders. And if we could really help people get out of this shame and blame thought process, we know that we see this generational um, effect where we have, you know, many times, and I know of many cases where the mom, the mom's mom was in foster care, and then the mom was in foster care, and then she has a child in foster care. And the feeling of how, how do I change this? They don't feel that they can be successful. And so we do see cases where people give up, um, because they don't know how to change things. And so really, I think, being able to build on a systems change is part of what happens. I really want to make sure that I don't sound like I'm only blaming the child welfare system because I don't want to be doing shame and blame or stigmatization either. I think it's just just being able to get into a room and talk about what we we've learned and what we know and hearing about those programs Mm -hmm. all helps. You know, a, a, a pregnant woman isn't the only one that feels alone. Right. Sometimes a social worker feels all alone in this and overburdened with problems without all the answers and, you know, not making enough money and all that stuff too, you know? Mm-hmm. So they need support too. So we're all talking, we need humanity for all of us, you know? And so I was thinking about how, so another community in Canada where I was living, Little Salmon Carmax First Nation. We did a, um, it's a Northern Toshone community where I lived for a while. And we used to have talking circles and get uh, the professionals and community people together. And we just talked about a situation. More came out of that than, well, you know how amazing talking circles are anyway. But so much real change happened from those conversations. If there was a way that we could protect the social workers so they don't get in trouble and you know with their guidelines 
and protects the parents. And if we could just get together and talk about what we could do, I, you know, I always believe in the power of people at the grassroots mm -hmm. level to make changes. And I think we as people can come together and come up with new ideas that would work. You know, when we're not trying to follow some, you know, um, outdated rules that somebody mm -hmm. somewhere made up, you know, <laughs> and we're all well, trying to follow, if we could just talk, if there's a way to make that okay, I wonder how we could do that. And I totally agree with you because I think I love how you say that, like not only outdated yeah. rules, but what may work in one community may absolutely not in another. And so we can't use, I, I don't feel like uniform guidelines always work because we need to look at what is valued within this community. What, what resources are here? You know, how willing are people to come together and do these things? But, you know, I guess, Deb, do you feel that we can ever make any change in stigmatization or even the child welfare system if we only look at that system? Oh, no, no, it's all of us together. I mean, yeah. all of it together, yeah. And you know what else? I think we have to, we have to trust in the goodness of people. Yeah. You know, in the goodness of the, uh, just at our core, our core, all of us as human beings, you know, going back to not trying to screw up, we have to trust in the goodness of people to be able to trust each other enough to be able to talk and come up with new ideas. I agree. And I, and I think back to, you know, different children and parents that I've worked with where they feel like, you know, no one has even asked me what would work for me. Like yeah. no one has ever even said like your story of success. No one said like, what could help you? Like what yeah. is help is keeping you maybe from feeling like you can succeed or for from getting the tools that you need from from different services what is the barrier here and you know we start saying um these are the barriers well those may be barriers for other people but maybe they aren't for that mom or that family and really remembering that we need to hear everyone's voice and what they need mm -hmm. um, so important and yet sometimes overlooked you know, I, I think it's so important uh, for the generations, for our ancestors, for all the babies from all the residential schools and all the awfulness that's happened in the past, for us to come together now and start honoring mothers and children and family relations and all of us as, as humans. We have to find a way to get past it and we owe it to the ancestors and to the future generations to be able to do this. Very really true, very true. Well, I've really enjoyed talking about the child welfare system and I, I really hope that we can find a way to bring our communities together to, to start looking at, at change. Yeah, I wanna put the coffee pot on and invite everyone over. Yeah, right now, oh, too bad we can't now. just have everyone here. Yeah, <laughs> I'm in the mood, it would be wonderful. Well, Nora, it's great to talk with you as always. Great to talk with you also, Deb. Thank you.